Orland Bishop, welcome back to the New School. Yeah, thank you. This is the fifth and final hour of our recording of your spiritual biography. In the previous uh, hours, uh, we traced your trajectory from uh, Guyana, where you were born, to high school in Brooklyn, New York, college in Los Angeles, and then your encounters with uh, a whole series of spiritual teachers who helped awaken um, or uh, reinforced or helped you rediscover various aspects of your um, both engagement with social justice and uh, the inner gifts that you were given even in childhood. Uh, and at the end of the last conversation, we discussed your experience with uh, a friend who profoundly changed your life, uh, Lazar, uh, a young artist in Los Angeles uh, um, who uh, died of AIDS. And at his death, said to you, uh, you need to do what you were brought here to do. And at that point, you resigned from uh, a position that you'd held for many years at True Medical Center, uh, uh, gave up um, a promising career in medicine and medical sciences, uh, and founded uh, the Shade Tree Multicultural Foundation, which was to be the base for your work with gang members in Los Angeles for ever since, really. Um, uh, as you opened yourself to this new possibility and founded Shade Tree, uh, you encountered a young man. Tell us about Antonio. Yeah, I had gone to um, the community of Watts to meet with a friend, uh, Robert, who was Antonio's cousin. And um, I was mentoring Robert from high school, and he had was in preparation for college studies. So um, while there at Robert's home, Antonia came in and he had taken a gun from under his shirt and put it under the cushion of the chair. And I looked at him and he saw me looking at him and he said, uh, don't I know you? And I said, well, we've seen each other around, but we don't really know each other. And he reached out his hands and I took his hands and we shook hands. I felt this charge of energy and I saw and felt committed to some future for him. And my quick thought was, how do I get this gun away from him? And um, this was 95, so Mosaic, Michael and us, we were in preparing for the first youth conference. Um, to be this held, is Michael Mead, Michael Mead um, for the first youth conference in 1995, and I thought, okay, I'll get him to come. So I told Robert, uh, why don't you? Um, well, Robert had already agreed to come, and I asked, well, why don't you invite Antonio? He said, ah, he don't go to things like that. <laughs> and I said, well, let him know anyway. And um, he said, yes, he was going to come. And uh, so I was happy that he was going to join us there. And when I uh, 
when he, he came to the event, and this was a remarkable gathering of maybe 120 or so uh, men. We had about 45 young men, mostly from gangs throughout California, and some from um, Chicago and such. But it was uh, it's one of the events. Every time we get together, Michael Mead and any, we talk about this event because it, it changed all of our lives to a, a degree that we never expected. Jack Cornfield. Jack Cornfield was there, and um, poor Jack had to revert to buying cigars to keep these guys <laughs> <laughs> settled. <laughs> and um, so every time Jack came back with a you know, stack of, of little cigars because they, we didn't want them to leave to go and buy the cigars. So Jack knew the neighborhood of Fairfax up here. So Jack went, to, he had to, to do the, the run to get the cigars. And um, but it was a remarkable gathering of, of, of engagement. But what happened was that they began to tell their stories at a level. And Antonio shared that, you know, he was nine years old and he was brought into the gangs. And, and other stories whereby people were, were given not so good choices, but the choices that will actually get them um, to fall into a kind of reality that was there for them, particularly a reality of violence and competing for economies, particularly drug economy. And um, so when we returned, to, returned from the conference at the end of the week, um, uh, we took him home and we got the call, I got the call that he was on Los Angeles Most Wanted. This was a television show that puts uh, profiles people who are wanted by the police, but to be the most wanted, um, to make the list is a significant thing. And so it, I called all of everybody who were, uh, the, Michael and others, and shared with them what, what I had, was learning. And we began to talk about what to do, how to respond to this. And we had to find out all the legal ramifications of uh, working with him, find a lawyer. And so we began to talk to people who had legal knowledge about this situation. And I began to, to, to counsel him of preparing for this, these charges that he had to face. He was arrested and um, started the court procedure of, um, he was facing 12 felony counts. Four of them were attempted murder. And uh, he was in, prior to coming to the event that I invited him to, he was in a car with some other um, alleged gang members and they somehow were sh sh shot at someone or someone's in the things, anyhow, Four shots were fired, and that's why the four counts of attempted murder. But everyone in the ch car got the same charge because they considered a conspiracy. Now, Antonio did not discharge any, any shots to the, the people, but it did not matter. That's how the law at that time worked, and, and all the enhancements of using a firearm and such. So it was 12 felony counts. And through the trial, I um, was asked to, to, by his lawyer to um, testify on his behalf because we are now beginning to really um, try to find a future for him. And he was acquitted. They found him not guilty of the charges. 
and uh, he was detained by the prosecution and held over for retrial. And they tried him again. We went through another almost full year. Uh, one of the trials and then the after thing is about a year. And he was acquitted a second time. He was retried. He was acquitted a third time. He was retried. He was acquitted a fourth time. And the fifth trial, um, he was held over for a fifth trial. And now we were saying, why after four hung juries would they still want this case to be pursued? Now, I got to know the prosecutions very well because every time they have to, um, have to do a, uh, they subpoena me to, to give, tell them what I'm going to say and such. So I got to know the lead prosecutor of the case very well in those four years. And um, so I didn't find it to be adversarial. I wasn't, we weren't saying that he was innocent or anything. We were just saying that let's talk about a possibility of future. And so in the fifth trial, uh, it was such that my testimony could not be heard. Um, every time the defense attorney asked me a question on his behalf, it would be challenged by the prosecution and the judge would sustain it. And so I did not get a chance to say anything about the work I was doing and why. And um, when the verdict came back, he was found guilty from how the, how the court proceedings went. And um, he was sentenced to 44 years to life. And well, a life sentence uh, automatically is appealed. Yeah? And so the lawyer fell, filed an, uh, uh, an appeal and it went to the appellate court. And that took a whole year for the appellate court um, overturned the conviction, saying that it was a mistrial. There were things that were inconsistent with the legal procedure. And so he was freed again, and they wanted to try him again. And so uh, we decided, um, myself, Michael Mead, um, Luis Rodriguez, and, a, and another friend, Mel Gilman, went to, uh, to meet with the prosecutor. And on his behalf, his lawyer, um, we negotiated a sentence, a plea bargain. And we negotiated 12 years. He'd already served six years on these trials. So it was just six additional years that he had to face. And um, we, we pr proposed that to him, if that was fair for him. Um, and he accepted it. And so uh, my work with Antonio was 12 years while he was in jail, in prison in California. And um, a lot of visits, a lot of... Um, correspondence by letters, telephone calls, but the process was, uh, I mean, <laughs> most of Chechi's career was this individual in prison. And um, I learned a lot about that work by um, starting from the very onset with courts and law enforcement and uh, all the things from his particular biography and story. And so while in prison for those following six years, we started a mentorship we call um, the Genesis Pathway of Coming Home. 
one has to first come home to one's own truth and resolve certain things, and that's what we began to practice. Um, he began um, by, in his writing of letters, and I can see from the progression from the time he started to write letters to me at the beginning of his trial to when he came home, even his whole cognition improved because he then had to communicate in a different way. And um, so from February of 1995, um, that was my work. And much of it was done in prison. Uh, for him, yes. Yeah. And then the rest in the neighborhood of Watts, mm -hmm. where some of the gang intervention work was beginning to unfold more structurally. The gang truce was started in 1992, was active. We had uh, leaders in, in both neighborhoods that were at conflict. And um, I was asked by um, my friend Akilah Shirels, who founded the, well, one of the founders of the gang truce, to be on his board of directors for the work. And we were training. We had a time by 1997, 98, um, about... Uh, 80 staff members, hmm. who former gang members who were now involved with um, holding the peace treaty at a deeper level hmm. and facilitating uh, interventions in other communities, other neighborhoods around Los Angeles. So on the 10th anniversary of that, we had um, 20 um, gang territories in Los Angeles that, were, that came to sign the 10th anniversary peace agreement. Hmm. And at that time, we had built enough relationships with law enforcement, including the sheriff of Los Angeles, mm. Sheriff Lee Baca, who also signed the gang agreement. So we had, for the first time, a law enforcement official um, signature on the contractual agreement for the gang truce. Mm -hmm. And we did that in um, 2002. Mm. There are many more stories we could tell, uh, um, and some of them are very powerful to me. But I think perhaps the best use of the remainder of our time is to reflect on, on the totality of this spiritual biography that we've uh, traced. And, um, and I want to start with a very specific question. Um, when somebody is, uh, it, it, this conversation with you reminds me of uh, eight months of intensive study that I did of a, um, of a great Sufi uh, philosopher named Ibn Arabi, who uh, uh, came out of Andalusian Spain and is considered the greatest of the, of the Sufi mystics. He, um, Rumi was a... Uh, 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 a spiritual descendant of his, Rumi, put into poetry what Ibn Arabi did in both poetry and uh, and theological and philosophical discourse. Uh, my friend Toby Symington was uh, very involved with the Ibn Arabi Society, is here today, and has studied Ibn Arabi also. Um, and one of Ibn Arabi's insights was, as a mystic, was that uh, for some mystics, there's one lineage that opens to them. Others have two or three or four or some number. One of the striking things about you is that quite a number of different lineages have, have been revealed to you in depth. Um, and 
when different lineages are revealed and the cognizing structure of each lineage is different, it raises the question of how you hold the different mystical cognitions of these different traditions within a single truth. And I wanted to ask how you do that. First, I don't take everything personally mm-hmm. to the degree that I feel this knowledge is me. I don't identify it with me. It's a code, it's a, um, a process through which consciousness acts. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a dialogue. I feel that each of these lineages is, belongs to beings behind them. Mm-hmm. And I'm allowed to enter into conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, how, where, where is language held? It's a capacity. And we access words and thoughts um, through this capacity to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so I feel the, um, those, those um, ideas are ways by which I use certain capacities. And when I use the word um, or words in, in different sentences, it's the context that makes them true. So in, in a context with a human being, I could adjust my own sense of belonging and belong to what they belong to. So I can be Islamic, Muslim. I know how. Mm-hmm. Because if I can cognize their truth based on their truth of belonging, I could enter that. It's not hard to. So I don't find it, I, I can't, I don't find a need to disagree with the, you know, a different view of reality. What I try to do is how could we use what we both know <laughs> to do something more. <laughs> and so uh, that relationship of those things for me. Um, is a responsibility to the capacities that I can bring to them, which is my living will. Mm-hmm. Late in the afternoon yesterday, sitting in my office with you, I asked you a question, which is, uh, I'll ask you again. Uh, I said to you, uh, I said, Orland, who are you? Well, you, you, you invoke Rumi a moment ago. <laughs> and one of the lines that impressed me deepest in one of Rumi's poems, it says, if someone asks you who you are, say soul within soul within soul. Mm-hmm. Um, this time and space personality is relevant to, to share time and space now. And I have to remember that um, it, it's only where I start to be myself. 
and I, I, I respect the personality that I'm given to meet the world in, but I don't feel tied to it. Um, when I'm not in conversation, I step out of that. I reflect more so on who I must be for um, the next experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm always prepared um, in ways that, that I am required to be who I, I am. I, I'm still, you know, I have to always keep in reflection mm -hmm. of what it is. Now I draw on certain inner experiences that, that informs a kind of um, layers of soul experience. And I feel, yes, I carry a, a deep current of belonging to the hermetic tradition of um, the times around certain individuals, particularly Thomas Aquinas, I felt that I can cognize memories of that phase of Christian hermetic tradition. Um, I feel there's a kind of memory around um, the areas of uh, North Africa. Um, not so much Egyptian, but you see even prior to that time. From the standpoint of, of um, the early Nile Valley civilizations. When I, when I reflect into areas of soul, not mind, but a soul, um, there are different pictures of belonging that happens. And I feel that this, in this kind of epoch of um, soul, soul, that this seventh shrine had to do with completing these 300-year cycles seven times before. Mm -hmm. Six times before. Six times, six times before. This seventh, is the seventh. No. Mm -hmm. And it, um, the 2100 years, something had, had to change significantly for me to reincarnate. And in, what do you think it was that changed? The American continent. Mm -hmm. And the particular destiny of the American continent, to which the African experience contributed such a powerful amount. This enormous human tragedy of 100 million people brought over, perhaps 28 million survived, 72 million or something like that died. Uh, and given second sight, uh, uh, an initiation of enormous pain and enormous power. Uh, yeah. Memphis, Tennessee, was where I feel I felt um, a kind of reveal, knowing that um, the American experience was necessary for me to enter into service of this continental vision. Um, it is also where Dr. King articulated the night before he was killed that 
if you know the Almighty said had given me asked him Martin Luther King which age would you like to live in? he said I would take my soul around the time of history and I would go to Egypt and in spite of all of that I wouldn't stop there I wouldn't I would go to Greece and Rome and in spite of that I wouldn't stop there I would go to you know age of the Renaissance and watch what it is doing for the aesthetic value of humanity, but I wouldn't stop there. I would ask, if you allow me to live in the second half of the 20th century, I would be happy. And now he said something interesting after that. He said, um, it will seem strange that you would want to be put into the hardest situation of your life, the darkest of cultural time. And he said, you, it was, it's only when it's dark enough that you can see the stars. And this was a clue to me that, that the light mystery has to do with going into areas of, of life that, um, that require people to make sacrifices, not so much based on knowledge or even ability, but a love for something. And I feel that with all the help that I've shared with today, that I was allowed to love this service, this earth service of redeeming what the sacrifice was. of African Middle Passage in particular. And the time for that had to, we have had to wait at least 300 years after certain people have made the attempts of articulating the freedom that the American continent is supposed to hold in even the birth of America. Do you know the uh, previous specific births in the cycle of seven births? Of of mine? Mm -hmm. No, I I don't. I I've had the opportunity to investigate. I don't investigate it. You don't investigate. I don't investigate. It. Okay. I I <laughs> to me this is how I I accepted that who I am now is uh is the total sum mm -hmm. of all of those experiences. Mm -hmm. And I don't need them anymore mm -hmm. as a knowing. Mm -hmm. I am them. Mm -hmm. And what is it like for you to walk through the world and carry the sum total of these experiences? Is it a difficult task or is it easy and peaceful for you? What, what is your experience carrying this totality of consciousness that you carry? It, it is a constant expansion of, of um, connection to the world. Um, it's expanding all the time. Does it involve a lot of suffering? Yes. Mm. Yes, I chose to do a Lakota tr tradition vision quest um, some years ago and fasting four days for four years, subsequently four years. And each of those 
four days was a descent into a kind of suffering and uh, a surrendering to uh, what lives in this continental space. Peace requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice mm -hmm. to hold it as a commitment to do. It is, it is not easy to do. Mm -hmm. And one has to overcome all sorts of habits, mm -hmm. physical needs as well, for peace to be. I mean, I've learned even sometimes not eating is helpful to making peace. Because sometimes you have to make sure that you don't fight over the last piece of whatever. Mm -hmm. Make sure someone else gets it so that they can be satisfied and let peace be. Now this is, this is consistent with the work of Gandhi and others who've said, you know, part of being able to make peace is to lay overcome the nature of one's own self. That it's not in the way of service to the other, ultimately. And as well to make sure that you're capable of holding suffering with others who may be suffering more than you are and feel it to be yours and not walk away. And so that, for me, is peace. In our conversation last night, I think it was, you spoke with great hope about this continent and what is possible here in terms of a future. And this is a time when very few people hold or experience hope. Um, could you describe that prophetic vision of what is possible here in North America? Yes. One, I, 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 I've come to understand that the American task, one, is to establish a, a covenant with the world of the dead. The Western Gate, in which America's biography is, is shaping itself to understand how to hold the Western Gate open complete what we call the Western initiation, the Western mysteries. The Western mysteries has to do with the world of the dead. Removing the veil so that the dead can be fully um, visible in the constitution of law. When America removes the death penalty from its constitutional, then it begins to really be in service to this world. Our, part of my work is to make it raise the question of America being in advocacy of life. Now, this, this lineage has been in, um, I mean, it's in the Constitution, the written document, of some fundamental truths. If we say we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are created equal, equal to what, to whom? And this is, this is the key. Every self-evident truth means you have to become self-evident self of the source of creation. 
and we equal to the source of creation. There's nothing to me more self-evident of other than your immortality. And this is what the American destiny is about. Creating again a society of immortals. Meaning not just people just living forever in the physical sense, but conscious of working on planes of, con of realities whereby freedoms, true freedoms could be. And the, the work of this Rosicrucian Lodge that, that Pascal Randolph set up was, he, in fact, he, was, he articulated more books about working with the dead than most others. But in the initiation of Lincoln's work, the Gettysburg Address is probably the most closest we'll ever come to a policy of making sure we don't forget our dead. That was the opening of the Western Gate, the Gettysburg Address. To say the Civil War was the creation of a civil society of relationship with the dead in service of creating a foundation for building a true city, a true nation of operative masons, not speculative. Operative masonry is the fact that people know their the true contributions that they'll make for something to be true. And those, that constitutional framework is for a society of architects um, that was consistent with uh, masonry from time of the beings of light in Egypt to what flew through, went through all the gates, the eastern gate, the southern gate, northern gate, and now the western gate. And um, so those, those four, those major civilizations have completed the, the pathway of these, of, these, um, of this great initiation. And we're back now, whereby the world of the dead will help us reconstitute this planet, this phase of the planet for a different kind of evolution. And so we're, we're, we're in, in that phase now. And it, it's, it's challenging that we, um, um, as much as we know uh, um, that war is still requiring so much investment of America's resources when it has the capacity to do more with the intelligence here. What do you see ahead of you for yourself? You are returning, you, you continue your work in, in Los Angeles uh, with gang members, you continue your teaching across the country and around the world. Uh, what do you hope for in terms of your service over the next five or 10 years of your life? To disseminate the message of the Aquarian Gospel Temple. Uh, currently, I'm the presiding priest of the Aquarian Gospel Temple, a continuity of Dr. Lagan's vision for um, initiating, helping to initiate people into their cultural task. I feel that, that the school is, a, is primarily important to um, the African-American lineage, lineage, but not exceptional to that. Mm -hmm. 
um, because it's a universal principle mm -hmm. of creation. But nevertheless, there, there has to be uh, the right use of this soul force. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'm engaging some conversations with those in the hip-hop community because I feel they have a critical responsibility to making sure that the music remain true to what it should serve. And secondly, that there must be uh, an economy of peace. And, and uh, so I'm committed to, to defining the uh, relationships that will allow us to share these higher planes of cognition and allow the, the cultural avatars and the spiritual avatars of, these, of this emerging age to assist us in creating a new covenant. So that, that is my trajectory is that Shaitri, the multicultural factor, is the fact that what we, what we teach and work with in mentorship is that uh, a person must be able to begin healing themselves as a first impulse, take hold of the will, and secondly, to be able to be themselves anywhere with anyone. And you don't need an enemy to be yourself. So these are the three principles of Shaitri's mentorship work. And if young people can carry that attitude to, in the world, they will overcome many of the temptations that undermine the sovereignty of human freedom. And for those uh, sitting with you in this room today, a, a dozen of us, and people who may hear this uh, via podcast and over the internet, um, if you were to describe the principles that you hope all people share in this journey toward um, um, a new birth of human consciousness, a new um, enactment of, of what it means to be human together on this earth in a, a just and sustainable way. What would you say to us uh, are the principles that you feel all of us must hold to? Well, I'm first so deeply grateful that um, you are here to uh, witness with me um, this story and the contributions of these spirit beings who have aided me to be a representation of their love for our time. Mm. And that the principles that, that hold me true to this task are seven basic truths that uh, were put forth by uh, Mark Edmund Jones in his theosophical work. Acceptance of miracles. That there is a kind of uh, supersensible reality in which we can participate beyond the realm of limitations of any kind. Acceptance of initiation, that we will have to endure a certain kind of transformation um, to become always new in the right use of our will. Acceptance of immortality, that behind the human nature 
is a source of beginning. Acceptance of absolute justice. We've inherited certain karmic processes and at the same time we're given destiny forces to transform them. Acceptance of invisible guidance. That we have an ancestral reality and the world of the dead and world of nature and the world of hierarchies acting to coordinate our life circumstances and can bring them in order if we follow it. Acceptance of repeated opportunity. Every mistake will be corrected. And acceptance of ultimate purpose. We are here for a reason of service to something greater than ourselves. And so these are the seven things that orient my own individual practices uh, in allowing the, the, the mind to be disciplined in these forms of acceptances, refining it through the experiences I gain. And um, Ultimately, love. There is no meaningful life without it. And through it, everything can be multiplied tenfold, hundredfold. Orland Bishop, thank you for being with us at the New School. Yes, and I really feel why this is a new school. This is a really <laughs> amazing space and I thank you so much Michael mm -hmm. for the hospitality of being here and the vision of Commonweal and um, this beloved community mm -hmm. gathered here. So thank you so very thank you much all. each of you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, blessings on your work and life.